Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. David J. Linden. David is a neuroscience professor at John Hopkins University School of Medicine and is the author of several books, including The Accidental Mind, The Compass of Pleasure, Touch, and Think Tank. Dr. Linden, can you tell me a little about your background uh, and how you got interested in neuroscience and some of the other work that you do? Uh, well, certainly. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and my father was a psychoanalyst. And so uh, dinner table conversation when I was growing up was all about uh, you know, the problems and dreams and, and uh, uh, struggles that uh, his patients had all without names, of course, to be confidential. And uh, uh, my father said, oh, you should be a psychoanalyst too. And I said, well, I don't know. I think I, maybe I want to get into the biology of the mind uh, instead. So that's, uh, that's how I got into neuroscience. And uh, that's how I ultimately, after many steps, wound up being a professor of neuroscience here at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, where I've been for the last 27 years. That's awesome. What are some of the things that have changed in the time that you've been studying neuroscience? Well, uh, I would say there have been enormous changes that, that many of the things that, uh, that I was taught uh, turned out to be either half wrong or entirely wrong. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I think is most clear that has come out of neuroscience in, in recent years is that our senses are not designed to give us the most accurate representation of the external world. Uh, rather, they are built to, to cherry pick, if you will, uh, to exaggerate certain things and uh, ignore others and uh, to blend it uh, with context and expectation and emotion to, so that for from the very first moment that we experience things through our senses, uh, it's, it's already sort of deeply spun, if you will, by the brain. Can you give some examples of that? Well, uh, sure. Uh, let's say that uh, you uh, enjoy both coffee or tea to drink in the morning and you're expecting coffee in your cup and uh, instead it turns out to be tea and you take it to your lips and you drink it. Your experience from that first moment will be entirely different. You'll go, you know, what's this? Uh, uh, rather than uh, if you had been uh, expecting coffee the entire time. So you, you're, what's coming to your senses is exactly the same, the smell, the taste, the temperature, the feel of the mug in your hand, it's all identical, but your experience of it is being, is utterly different based on what you expected. You no, know, I was going to say another example uh, along these lines is that we, we sort of imagine that we have more uh, autonomy and willpower and reason than we really do. We, we like to think of ourselves as sort of creatures of reason who can take in the unvarnished data and make rational decisions about it. Uh, 
in an unemotional manner if necessary. But, but in truth, emotion is deeply intertwined with perception from the very first moments. And, and this is really something that is uh, inherent in the wiring diagram of the brain. So, for example, when sensory information comes into the brain, it splits, and uh, uh, half of it goes to a part of the brain that's involved in sort of just the facts, uh, like, uh, you know, if this is touch information, it might be, well, where in my body am I being touched, and in what fashion, and how hard, and with what speed, all the, the factual stuff. And then there's that, that, that information also diverges to a second part of the brain that is all about the emotional content, which is, you know, am I liking this or not liking it? And so, you know, we think that pain feels bad intrinsically and an orgasm feels good intrinsically. But, but this is really a trick our brain plays on us. So if you have damage to, you know, the emotional touch centers of your brain, then pain doesn't feel bad at all. It has no emotional component whatsoever. You could describe it very dispassionately. You would say, oh, yes, you're hitting my, my thumb with a hammer. That's pain. It's, yeah, it's, it's throbbing now. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but you wouldn't go, ah, that's terrible. And uh, likewise, if you have the emotional touch center of your brain damaged, you would have an orgasm that's more like whoops than like the sort of uh, deeply resonant, uh, pleasurable experience that it normally is. Is this what you see when you, when somebody has damaged these parts of the brain? Yes, exactly. So we can see this uh, in a couple of different ways. One is when people have damage to that part, to to one or the other part of the brain, then you'll have a particular syndrome. So for pain, if you have damage to the emotional touch center of the brain, then you have what's called pain asymbolia, which is this non-emotional response to pain. Now imagine that you have the damage reversed. And so instead, what is damaged is the part of the brain having to do with the facts of pain. Then if I whack you on the thumb with a hammer, you'd say, oh, that's terrible. I'd say, oh, I'm so sorry. Where does it hurt? And you'd say, I have no idea. I just know that it's bad. Right? So we experience the sensory world as being in having emotions associated with particular sensations, whether they are touch or visual or, or auditory or, or vestibular or whatever. Uh, but this is only because two different uh, parts of the brain are active at the same time, and we experience this, the 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 blended sum, the gestalt, if you will, of, uh, of those two types of activation. Another way that we know this is because some people have seizures that selectively invade one part of the brain. So, uh, for example, uh, uh, there's a case in the medical literature of a woman in Taiwan uh, who has an orgasm whenever she brushes her teeth. And tooth brushing in general, not just for this woman, is is can be the kind of motion that can be a trigger for a seizure because it's kind of repetitive and and high frequency, and that for some reason like gets activity in the brain going that can trigger a seizure. And in her case, it triggers an orgasm. And in her case, that orgasm is a complete orgasm because it invades both sort of the the discriminative sensory, the factual parts of the brain, and also the emotional uh, touch areas. But uh, other people have had 
seizures that invade only one or the other. And so they will have that um, divested experience, either the emotional response alone or the sensory discriminative response alone. That is a wild example. It gives brushing your teeth a whole nother, <laughs> another perspective. Right. Um, a friend of mine said, I'm going to go brush my teeth really hard right now. <laughs> Um, so this brings up a couple of different things. One, um, you mentioned these different, two different systems in the brain or parts of the brain. Can you explain what those parts are? Well, sure. Uh, if you want the anatomical terms, I can, I can give those to you. So, uh, you know, so let's say touch information is coming from your body. It is conveyed via nerve fibers to your spinal cord and, uh, uh, from your, your spinal cord, it comes into the brain, and then it then it branches to ultimately innervate two two areas. The area that is involved in the sort of the sensory discriminative, the factual parts of touch sensation, is called the primary somatosensory cortex, and uh, and uh, uh, the part that uh, is involved in the emotional touch sensation is uh, is called the posterior insula. And the posterior insula is a little bit more forward in the brain. It's sort of closer to your eyes uh, than the other part, which is more sort of uh, kind of in the, in, the, in the middle top of your brain. And how does our brain sort of process or create this sort of gestalt uh, between the two? Well, you know, that's, that's a really kind of great and deep question. And the short answer is we don't know. In other words, how is it that activity in different parts of the brain is portrayed as a unified whole is is something we don't understand. Some people believe that there are sort of patterns of 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 electrical rhythms that pervade the brain, uh, um, oscillations, if you will, that bind together somehow the activity in disparate brain regions and allow you to have a perceptual gestalt. But that that's just a theory. We don't really know that uh, that's true. The the problem is there's so far no good way to sort of block those those rhythms and keep the other local activities intact. That would be a really good test of that uh, hypothesis. So I have a feeling there's some a few people trying to figure out how to solve that problem. Yeah, no, there's there there's more than a few. It's called the binding problem. And uh, yeah, it's a real it's a real big deal in uh, in brain research. You mentioned seizures. What's actually happening in a seizure? Well, a seizure is you know, so the brain functions by sending electrical signals between brain cells, which are called neurons. And there's two different kinds of signaling in the brain that are intermingled: electrical signaling. Uh, which in which an electrical deflection called an action potential or a spike is conveyed from one part of a neuron to another. And then when it gets to the end of the information sending part of the neuron, which is called an axon, uh, a chemical neurotransmitter is released. And this diffuses across a very tiny saltwater-filled gap and then activates receptors in the next neuron. So many of the psychoactive drugs that you're aware of act uh, at synapses, at these saltwater-filled gaps, and they act on the receptors for neurotransmitters. Other ones act upon the ion channels, gives rise to the electrical parts of the sensation. But what a seizure is, is when electrical activity 
gets out of control and goes longer than it should and spreads to parts of the brain uh, where it shouldn't, uh, that's epilepsy. And, and it can vary enormously, right? Some people have seizures that are very subtle where they just start to stare a little bit and then they come back or maybe one finger on the hand will start to twitch a little bit and other people can have a seizure that involves the entire body and loss of muscular control and you know limbs filling and, and, and muscular contractions everywhere. But in the end, uh, it's all some fourth sort of, uh, of disorder of constraining electrical activity in the brain. And in the brain, there is both what's we called excitatory electrical activity that promotes this electrical signaling and inhibitory electrical activity. So there are neurotransmitters that damp it down and the balance between the two has to be right. And if it gets out of balance, you can have a seizure. And what causes it to become out of balance? Well, uh, it can become out of balance for different reasons. There are there are types of epilepsy that are uh, that are passed down uh, uh, from parents to children, and there are epilepsies that can result from brain damage, from traumatic brain injury, uh, like from a car crash or repeated uh, uh, sports injury. Um, there is epilepsy that can come from neurotoxins. There are people who can have uh, atypical reactions to uh, either prescription or recreational drugs. So there, you know, there's a number of different ways for the electrical signaling to get out of hand. It's sort of like the same, it's sort of like, you know, if you imagine cancer uh, is uncontrolled cell growth. Well, there's a whole lot of ways for that to happen. It can be triggered by a virus. There are genetic propensities. It can happen from carcinogen uh, chemicals. It can happen from you know, uh, x-rays or, 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 or ultraviolet rays hitting your DNA and making a problem. And there are many different ways to get to the same endpoint that's cancer. Likewise, there are many different ways to get to the same endpoint, which is epilepsy. You mentioned earlier, and, and, and this is sort of a side tangent, I guess, but you mentioned like the twitching of, I think of a finger or like the, when, when someone's like cheek starts twitching or their lips starts twitching. Is that a small seizure or is that something else? Well, it can be different things. It can be a seizure. It can also uh, be sometimes people will, th there's a disease you may have heard of called Bell's palsy, which is a, a like a herpes virus infection of, uh, of the facial or trigeminal nerve that can sometimes give rise to to facial twitching, people can have that just from being nervous sometimes. So it isn't necessary. If you see someone's facial muscle twisting, it most of the time it probably isn't a seizure. Okay. Yeah. I just I, I just thought I'd get some clarity around that. Um, I want to shift directions a little bit to, towards your books and the Compass of Pleasure: How Our Brains Make Fatty Foods, Orgasm, Exercise, uh, Marijuana, Generosity, Vodka, Learning, and Gambling Feels So Good. You talk about a lot of different concepts, and I want to explore them. And the first one is, where does pleasure come from? Yeah, well, well, that's that's a great question, and so you know, it sort of raises the larger, both philosophical and evolutionary question of of why even have pleasure? Why even have what scientists call a reward system? And basically, it's there so that uh, you know that behaviors. Uh, that are necessary to survive and get your DNA into the next generation, like eating food uh, when you're hungry and drinking water when you're thirsty and having sex, uh, 
feel good so that you're motivated to do them again. Uh, you know, that's that's the short answer. Uh, the long answer is that uh, you know this 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 reward circuitry in the brain, uh, uh, particularly in humans, has gotten has gotten so extensive and has is so interconnected with higher brain regions that it can be co-opted by all kinds of things. So you know, we whereas a, a mouse will take pleasure from eating food and drinking water. And having sex, a human can take pleasure from abstaining from sex or fasting or, you know, if you have a certain set of philosophical or religious ideas, right, those things can be uh, rewarding. We can, we can take pleasure in things that are, that are very far removed or even antithetical to surviving and getting our genes into uh, the next generation. Uh, at a neurochemical level, there are a number of different neurotransmitter systems that seem to uh, be involved in pleasure and reward, uh, but uh, one that you've probably heard of that's received a lot of attention is the neurotransmitter dopamine. So many of the psychoactive drugs that, that are, are pleasurable, whether they're stimulants like uh, cocaine, uh, and uh, amphetamines or depressants like uh, alcohol or uh, heroin uh, have in common that they activate the brain's uh, dopamine circuitry and as a consequence are rewarding and also as a consequence have a, have a possibility of developing addiction. Can you explain um, how dopamine works? Well, uh, dopamine is, uh, there, there are certain parts of the brain, uh, that have neurons that use the neurotransmitter dopamine. One area is called the ventral tegmental area or VTA. And another one is called the substantia nigra. And, uh, these areas send their information sending fibers, their axons, to many different parts of the brain, including the neocortex, which is involved in higher sensory and cognitive and planning functions, as well as parts of the brain that are intrinsically involved in reward. And these are parts of the brains with names like the nucleus accumbens and the striatum. And it, it, is, it is this, what's called, it's called the mesolimbic dopamine circuitry. That is the dopamine fibers that go from the ventral tegmental area to the nucleus accumbens and the striatum that seem to be <clears throat> Pardon me. The core of uh, of pleasure, the core of the reward circuitry. So we know if we activate them artificially, uh, say by implanting elect an electrode in them and giving someone the ability to press a button to self-stimulate that part of the brain, uh, that they'll do it over and over and over again uh, and and won't want to stop because it's it feels just so good. So they just keep pressing the button. They keep pressing the button. This was first done accidentally in rats. Uh, uh, people were trying to implant a, uh, an electrode in a, in a different part of the brain, and they missed, and they hit this part called the medial forebrain bundle that carries, among other things, these dopamine fibers. And they found that first they, they would press the button, and they found that whenever they would press the button, the rat would linger in that part of its environment uh, uh, very strongly. And, uh, and later... They, they set it up so that the rat had a lever in its cage 
and it could press the lever and self-stimulate this reward circuitry in its brain. And what they found is that rats would just do that all day long. They would, uh, they were so motivated that they would cross uh, shocking electrical floor grids to get there. They would ignore food when they were hungry and starve themselves to death, just keeping the, the letter. When they were sexually receptive, they would still ignore a rat of the opposite sex in order to keep pressing the lever. Nothing was better than pressing that lever. So how do we press that lever in everyday life? Well, you know, you can press that letter lever in everyday life you know, in a way that's destructive by, by taking drugs that artificially activate it strongly, like heroin or uh, amphetamine. Uh, I, I don't recommend that. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, you know, the, the, the better ways to activate it uh, in everyday life are through varied, moderate uh, uh, indulgence of, of both uh, of both vices and 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 pro-social things. So you know, you, you mentioned the title of the book, and it included both vices like you know vodka and cannabis uh, and sex, as 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 well as things that we think of as being more pro-social, like learning and uh, exercise and generosity. And so one of the things we know is that it's it's not just our vices that can activate our pleasure circuitry. Uh, it's uh, also, certain uh, virtuous behaviors. So, so the, uh, the 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 kind of pleasure that we get from exercise, or from learning something new, or that most but not all people give from being from being generous and being uh, socially recognized for that. They also uh, activate uh, the same or similar parts of this reward circuitry. Yeah, I guess what I'm getting at is that we do this. All the time, right? Like we we throughout, well, you know, throughout the day, day you eat when you're hungry, right? Drink water when you're thirsty. So yeah, I mean this this part of the brain, uh, you're you're using it all the time. Not not just if you take heroin. I mean heroin. If this reward circuitry isn't there, so that it can be activated by heroin and amphetamine. The way I think of it is that heroin and amphetamine hijack the system that is there for things like drinking water and eating food and having sex. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting um, to me how the thought of how dopamine affects uh, the things that I do and what other people do on a day-to-day -day basis. Right, and there are other neurotransmitters that are also involved in the reward circuitry, uh, uh, like uh, serotonin and norepinephrine. Uh, and then there are other neurotransmitter systems that feed into the dopamine, including the the brain's natural marijuana-like molecules, the endocannabinoids. Uh, so it's not – there are two things that should be stated. One is that dopamine isn't just the pleasure chemical. It's more complicated than that. It has many functions. And the other thing is that it's not reward is solely a property of dopamine. There, are, As time goes on, there are other neurochemical systems that are – also being uh, being implicated. Can you talk about what are some of those other functions of dopamine and then talk about some of these uh, other neurotransmitters or reward systems that are affected by our behavior? Yeah, well, dopamine seems to have uh, an important role in, in decision-making, in self-control, in uh, deciding the relative value of things. Uh, and, uh, 
and I'm sorry, the second part of your question were other neurotransmitter systems that are also involved in reward? Yeah. Yeah, you talked about serotonin. Yeah. You talked well, about, so yeah. serotonin is also is also important, and uh, as we know, you know, serotonin is involved in lots of things. It's involved in mood. It's involved in sex drive. Uh, it's involved in in regulating the temperature of your body. Uh, but but serotonin seems to have some involvement in in reward learning circuitry that that is that we're still beginning to unpack. One of the things that that I've read recently, a couple, a couple of things in relation to serotonin and dopamine, was that that dopamine was uh, strongly associated with pleasure, and and serotonin is more strongly associated with contentment. Is that something that's true? Contentment is a difficult thing. You know, for example, contentment sort of implies some sort of self-reflection some idea of evaluating your status and comparing it with others and and sort of looking at the state of your life in a moment and and wow that's you know that's something that we have very little understanding of right now so quite honestly i i get a little nervous even talking about about contentment or happiness as concepts neurologically that's that's I stick to reward and pleasure uh, because it's something that's more immediate in the moment and we have not a complete but a much better understanding of it than we do about contentment or happiness or our place in the larger social world. I mean, what we do know is that, you know, we're very social creatures, right? Uh, we and our and our uh, our uh, our hominin ancestors have have lived in social groups for for uh, you know hundreds of thousands uh, of years, if not if not longer. And as a consequence, uh, we have brain systems that are are very attuned to to social interaction, to caring what others. Uh, uh, think about us and to reading uh, uh, other people's uh, uh, social cues and and opinions, right? Uh, you know, to give an example, uh, we're extremely attuned to nuances of vocal tone and facial expression, and we're extremely attuned to knowing where someone's gaze is located. So from across the room, like you know, uh, and particularly women know, you know, if someone's looking at your face or looking at your chest, right? That's not a difficult thing to do, even though that's a very subtle computation, right? Our our visual system is very adapted to extract that information about the location of another's gaze because it has been so socially important for for so long. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, 
and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I, w- I want to shift gears because I know we have some constraints on time. Um, can you talk about emotion and the purpose of emotion? Well, you know, emotion, whether it is positive or negative, is the brain's way of saying, hey, pay attention. This is important. Underline this. Write this down. Remember it, right? So, you know, the classic example is, uh, you know, everybody knows where they were when they heard about 9-11, if they were old enough to have been, you know, uh, cognizant uh, at that point. And, and the reason is because emotional situations cause the release of certain neurotransmitters and hormones that, that, that change our brain function and write things into memory uh, more strongly. Right. So as you have experiences in life that are repeated, they tend to be rendered generic. So, for example, if you've only been to the beach one time in your life, you probably remember a lot of the details of that. But if you've been to the beach 50 times in your life, you're probably not going to remember anything specific about visit number 37 unless something emotionally salient happened there. Let's say, you know, you met your true love that day on the beach in time number 37, then you probably will remember it. Why? Because those emotionally uh, uh, relevant neurotransmitters and hormones are affecting your brain chemistry in a way that writes that, inf- that information into memory uh, uh, and preserves it uh, more strongly. A word that, that, that we like to use is salience, meaning, you know, something that is important for some reason. And either something really good or something really bad is salient. If it makes you happy, if it makes you feel loving, that's salient. If it scares you, if it makes you feel fearful, that's also salient. It's almost like page rank for Google. Exactly. It's, that's, that's actually a really good analogy, right? It doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. It's important. It's salient. And so your brain wants to keep track of, of what's salient because the salient things are, are, are the things that you need to learn from uh, in order to optimize your behavior, to maximize your, your survival and your reproductive success. We talked a little bit about this, but one of the questions I had was, how is pleasure produced and experienced in the brain, mind, and body? And then how is the production of pleasure different in different activities, for example, food or sex or exercise? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's a great question. Let's take exercise as an example. Uh, for a long time, uh, it was thought that intense physical exercise uh, uh, caused the relief of the brain's natural morphine-like molecules called endorphins and enkephalins. 
and that they went to the brain and activated the brain's reward circuitry, and that was the basis of phenomena like runner's high. And the, the reason to think that was because you can take blood from people like after they've been exercising uh, intensively, and you can uh, find uh, high levels of endorphins in the blood. Everybody got very excited for that for a while until they realized that those endorphins don't cross into the brain. There's something called the blood-brain barrier that, it, that allows some chemicals in and excludes others, and these endorphins don't cross the blood-brain barrier. So, like, it turned out that that wasn't really the, the issue. Now, you know, if we were unethical, we could give people spinal taps after uh, exercising uh, to satisfy our curiosity about whether endorphins went up in the cerebrospinal fluid and got into the brain. But, you know, you're not going to do that because a spinal tap is a, has complications, a dangerous thing. You don't just do it for the hell of it. Uh, so uh, then the question becomes, well, what is the basis of runner's high? And people realize that that runner, that, that exercise also uh, raises uh, in the blood the concentration of the brain's natural marijuana-like molecules called endocannabinoids. And the interesting thing about endocannabinoids is that they're greasy. Uh, and, and greasy things cross cell membranes. They, they get into the brain very easily. So a greasy molecule in the blood will will make its way into the brain and have uh, be able to have uh, bind receptors in the brain to have a uh, an ultimately rewarding effect, whereas uh, an endorphin in the blood can't ever penetrate the brain to to get in to do it. So there's one example of how the brain chemistry from exercise uh, activates uh, the reward circuitry. I have another question. How how can something pleasurable like food or sex or exercise become a compulsion or an addiction? Yeah, well, so that's a that's a great question. And uh uh the answer is that that's that's a very active area of endeavor. There are many labs working on it. We don't entirely understand, but what we do know is that when you artificially activate uh, the brain's reward circuitry over and over and over again, you actually produce changes within the neurons of that reward circuitry. So you may remember a moment ago, I said the kind of the core of the reward circuitry is uh, in a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens and the striatum. And the strength of connections between neurons in those brain areas is altered as addiction develops. And the bad news is that really all the indications are is that it's altered forever. And this is part of the reason why it's so hard for addicts to get clean and stay clean. In other words, you know, let's say that, that you developed uh, an addiction to cocaine and then you successfully got clean. Well, your brain is now different forever than someone who never developed an addiction to cocaine. And if you, uh, part of it is that it's, it's like a learning process. All the things that you did while you were taking cocaine, the, the people you were with, the music you heard, the places you were, the sounds, the smells, all of those became associated with that intensely pleasurable reward. And 
that changed neural circuitry in the brain so that when you see and smell and hear those things again, it produces a craving by, by, by alterations of that reward circuitry. The other thing that happens is that you're sensitized. So if you fall off the wagon and try a little tiny bump of cocaine after you've broken addiction, the pleasure you will get from that is much stronger than someone would get who was trying that for the very first time. So these are the things where the brain conspires to suck you back into addiction. And it's why breaking addiction is so difficult and why many people need many attempts to break addictions to cigarettes or alcohol or heroin or cocaine or even behavioral things like gambling. What's actually happening when somebody does successfully break that pattern? Are they just sort of suppressing or are they changing the neurology of their brain? Well, you know, that that's a great question, and we don't really know. And part, part of the reason is because, you know, we don't have really a model of breaking addiction in animals. That's a human phenomenon. But then in humans, we're limited as to how we can ethically study them. In other words, you can use a brain scanning machine that doesn't, like, go into the skull, right? But it has very low resolution and can only give kind of very vague kinds of information about patterns of activity in the brain. You know, in a, in a laboratory animal like a rat, well, you know, we can stick an electrode in, we can harvest the tissue and measure chemical changes, we can cut slices and put it under a microscope. There are all kinds of things that we can reasonably do to investigate it. Uh, and we can learn a lot because rats can become addicted. But for something more complicated like staying clean versus not, you know, that's that's something that's harder to study an animal model, and as a consequence, we don't have the techniques that give us many more of the of the of the biological details. That's fascinating. I want to talk a little bit about touch, the science of hand, heart, and mind. Can you expand on the connection between touch, heart, and mind? Touch is an intrinsically uh, emotional sense. Uh, when, uh, and, and we know this just by our, our everyday word usage. When we say I'm emotionally affected, we say I'm touched. When you say my feelings, you don't say my, my hearings or my smellings. You say my feelings. Uh, you had a bad day. Uh, emotionally, you say I had a rough day. Uh, things went easily. They were smooth, right? So we can tell just from our language that there is some special relationship between touch and emotion. And touch generally, but particularly interpersonal touch. So uh, uh, all of our, our, our touch sensations are, are, are deeply emotionally coded and activate parts of the brain that are that are involved in emotional responses, mostly positive, but, but sometimes negative uh, uh, for pain. So when I'm talking about hand, heart, and mind, that's, that's really where I'm going with this. We know that uh, in young children who are touch-deprived, uh, so for example, you may have heard about orphanages in Romania under the dictator Ceausescu, who were uh, where they were uh, dramatically understaffed, and uh, the best 
the caretakers to do would be to prop a, a bottle and move on, but they didn't give the babies the kind of, you know, loving touch and snuggling that, that babies normally get all over the world. Well, you know, these kids developed all kinds of terrible problems, not just uh, neuropsychiatric problems, but, you know, problems with the immune system and digestion and all kinds of fundamental somatic medical problems. We know that when some volunteers went in uh, to those babies and gave them a half an hour of loving touch a day, that basically that rescued almost all of these problems. So touch is not optional uh, for, for, for normal human development. It's absolutely required. And uh, it's most required in, in very early life, but, but uh, it is also uh, important throughout life, particularly in, in, in social situations. You know, there's a reason why when you watch sports, people are doing all that high-fiving and chest bumping and fist bumping and ass patting and the things that they do. You know, that is how we communicate socially. Uh, I'm not a threat. I'm your ally. I'm on your side. We're together in this. How, how does touch affect our emotions? And then how, like what's happening chemically when we are touched and, for example, we feel good? Well, when you're touched and you feel good, uh, uh, you are activating, among other things, the brain's dopamine using reward circuitry. So certainly uh, that's part of it. What's interesting to me is part of what we consider like a good social touch is determined culturally, but some of it is hardwired in our brains. So, you know, imagine if someone is stroking uh, uh, the upper surface of, of your arm. There is an ideal caress, sort of an intermediate speed uh, and an intermediate pressure. So if someone either touches you so lightly, that doesn't feel good. That's, that's like tickling. And if they press down hard, that doesn't feel good. And if they, they crawl their fingers really slowly like a bug, that doesn't feel good. And if they skim them really fast, that doesn't feel good. You got to be in the middle for both of those parameters. And you might say, well, all right, all that information is being sent to the brain and the brain is figuring that out and likes those, that, that particular optimal touch. But, but it turns out it's actually kind of coded into the neurons in the skin. So there are particular uh, neurons that, 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 that touch neurons that wrap around the, basis of, the base of hairs that are in the skin of the upper arm. And if we record from those neurons in a human while that, while that skin is, is being caressed at different speeds and with, with different pressures, we find that the speed and pressure that is the optimal caress also activates the most electrical activity in those neurons that are flowing, that are conveying that information from the, from the upper surface of the arm to the spinal cord and ultimately to the brain. So that encoding is actually built not in our brains, but, but in the neurons that are innovating our skin and possibly in the structure of the skin itself. So I, I'm assuming that would vary a little bit person to person? Well, you know, it varies a little bit culturally. In other words, there's, there, there are cultural ideas about when social touching is appropriate and, you know, in between same sex, opposite sex, there are all kinds of, of ideas. But the actual speed, you know, it's not like people have gone all the world, all kinds of different cultures and done this. But it's been done in Sweden and in the USA and in, in, in Japan and in China. And in all those cases, people seem to like the same speed of caress uh, on their arm. 
and it seems to also produce the most electrical activity in these particular fibers called C-tactile fibers that are conveying this information to the spinal cord and then to the brain. This is pretty geeky, but who's doing this research? Well, uh, the uh, preeminent lab in the world is, uh, is, uh, is located in Sweden, and uh, I can't right now remember what university is in Sweden, but they, uh, there's a, there's a, this involves a technique where you actually sort of take a needle and slip it into someone's arm and you kind of hunt around to find individual nerve fibers that you can record from, and then you can find the right ones that are coming from these, these, these nerve fibers that wrap around the base of hairs. And it's a difficult thing to do. It requires a lot of practice and a very steady touch. And uh, and and uh, there are a couple of different groups in Sweden that have gotten very good at this. It's called microneurography. Uh, but uh, but they're not the only ones. There are you know maybe a dozen labs around the world who are pretty good at it. It sounds like uh, they're taking Swedish massage to the next level. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, uh, more seriously, um, can you talk a little bit about how we would distinguish or how we distinguish positive versus negative touch well yeah you know um again it's a little bit like context remember the example i gave about drinking coffee when you were expecting tea you know it's 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 not just in the 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 type of stimulus it's also depending upon the context and the expectation so imagine you're with your sweetheart and uh, it's a loving, connected time, and they reach over and caress your upper arm. You go, oh, that's nice. Now imagine that your sweetheart is doing the exact same thing, the exact same touch, the same way, with the same pressure and the same speed, and everything about the sensation is the same, but instead of being in a loving, connected time, it's in the middle of an argument where things aren't resolved and you're not feeling good about each other and, and you're working it out. Well, that touch doesn't feel the same, right? It's not, and the important thing is it doesn't feel the same from the very first moment you experience it. It's not like, oh, it's the same raw sensation and then pondering about it later, it has a different quality. From the very first moment, you sort of melt in to that touch in the loving context and you can often recoil from that touch in the oppositional context. So, our, our experience of touch is not just dependent upon sort of the pure facts of what's happening being done to your skin at that moment. It's dependent upon what you expect to happen, on context, on your emotional state, on, on what's going around you, and, and, and in particular, if it's interpersonal touch, on what the social dynamic is. You talked a little bit about social touch and individual development with the example of the babies. You also talked about how um, you found that, or, or, or people found in studies that uh, lack of touch could affect things like digestive system later on and, and other other variables. How is that possible? Yeah, that's a great question. The short answer is we don't know. In other words, the long answer is going to be something like, you know, when you are a baby and, and you get this normal social touch that babies get, get, that that ultimately produces some electrical and chemical signal that allows for a normal development of the body and you know there will be some biochemical answer to that. Uh, right now we don't know what that is. Uh, it 
may have something to do with the alleviation of stress hormones, but really that's very much a black box. I would I would love to be able to give you an answer on that. It would be very medically important, uh, but uh, but we don't know. One of the things I've heard is that touch also causes the release of oxytocin. Is, is that true? And if it, or is the answer actually more complex? Well, the answer is that touch in a socially bonding situation where it is seen as socially reinforcing and positive causes the release of oxytocin. In other words, some freak on the subway grabbing you doesn't cause the release of oxytocin. And how does oxy the release of oxytocin and, and sort of healthier touch affect the way that we feel and behave? Well, you know, it's complicated. In the popular press, we hear that, oh, oxytocin is the cuddle chemical, and, you know, uh, when you have oxytocin, people become more trusting and more bonded. And, you know, that's, that's only half true. Uh, the action of oxytocin is more complicated than that. For example, there have some studies that show when there's oxytocin uh, released in the brain, it makes you more trusting of people who you perceive as like you, but it actually makes you more xenophobic and suspicious of people you see as not like you. Uh, so the, the, the details of how oxytocin affects social cognition in the brain are, I think, are going to turn out to be a lot more complicated than it's the cuddle chemical. Last couple of questions, and then we're just about over on time. Um... Yeah, how does touching our emotions affect our social interactions and, and really our overall health? We know that, that, first of all, not everyone is the same. In other words, most people have, for their culture, a set of ideas about social touch that are pretty similar. But there are, there are people who are, who are very touch-averse, and uh, a lot of this, they're probably born that way. Uh, in the sense that uh, uh, certainly people on the autism spectrum are often sensitive to sensory overload in any dimension, whether it's sounds or vision or touch. But 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 touch aversion is 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 particularly uh, something that is notable uh, on the on the on the autism spectrum. So not everyone is is the same. Certainly, people who have had uh, uh, traumatic experiences uh, related to touch who've been assaulted can often be very averse. But for most people, touch is important socially because it is, it is a way of, 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 of communicating, we're on the same team, you can trust me, we're in this together. And that is extremely important for all kinds of situations, not just between lovers, but between parents and children, siblings in the family, to some degree, uh, uh, co-workers, or you want to be careful about touching your co-workers, uh, uh, obviously. Uh, but, uh, you know, we know, for example, in the, N in the NBA, that the teams that engage in more celebratory touch not only tend to win more, but they tend to play in a more cooperative fashion. You know, the star might be more likely to pass off to another player who who has an open shot than they would be if they were a team that didn't engage in as much social touch. So, so, so touch is social glue uh, for most folks. Dr. Linden, any last words of wisdom for the listeners who want to take some of the ideas in your research and and uh, have healthier relationships? 
Well, you know, I think what I would say, sort of getting back to pleasure, is is uh, you know, adopt your 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 vices uh, uh, carefully, and you know, the the the, the uh, you know, my advice would be to mix your pleasures. You know, don't don't overdo the drink, don't overdo the cannabis. Uh, you can you almost can't overdo the sex as long as you're being ethical. There's there's really not a downside to that. But you know, mix your vices with your virtues, right? You can activate your pleasure circuitry, uh, not 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 just by you know having a vodka or smoking some herb, but but also uh, by learning something new or or being generous or 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 exercising your body. You know, the exercise is crucial. It's the it's the single best thing you can do to to uh, to maintain your mental function. It's better than any brain training game or any Sudoku or, or or anything like that. And and it's important throughout life, but particularly as you get older. So I would say, you know, my number one recommendation would be, you know, find as many ways as possible to activate your reward circuitry, virtues and vices, and 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 exercise is key. Dude, this has been absolutely awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Dr. Linden and his books and everything that he does, we're going to post some links on the Craft Charisma website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out about him uh, more easily. Thank you again. Thanks for having me on. It's dating coach Chris Lona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.